0: Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com. Coming up on this week's
1: show, the definitive operating system for retro gaming.
2: The Sega Saturn Switch emulator gets hacked, and we talk kickoff with the legend Dino Dini.
1: The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our good friends at Bitmap Books. Now, available from the end of this month, check out The Secret History of Mac Gaming, Expanded Edition. If you thought the Mac wasn't a gaming platform, it started some of the biggest franchises in gaming history, Myst, Halo, SimCity, to name but a few, and this book goes really in-depth, over 480 pages long. Available from the end of this month, check that out on the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number two nine eight. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood, me, Robbie Abbott, and me, Joe Fox, and a very warm welcome to this week's show. The podcast that talks about classic video games, video games like uh, I don't know, Mortal Kombat, Pac Man, Space Invaders. Name some retro games, Joe. Uh, why do you always put
3: me on the uh, <laughs> on the <laughs> on the spot? Come on, this is meant to be a pacey Jesus. intro like Time Crisis, Contra, Resident Evil, Castlevania... Anything like that. If you like anything retro, you're going to find it here on the Retro Hour. There you go.
1: <laughs> that is what we do each week. Not only do we bring you up to date on everything that's happening in the world of retro gaming and technology, which, you know, over the uh, almost 300 episodes of this podcast now and um, that we'll talk more about in just a moment. But we've, uh, you know, we've seen the retro scene over the six years. It just seems to get bigger and bigger all the time, doesn't it? Because I remember in our early episodes... There were a lot of people that thought we might maybe get to maybe 10, 20 episodes and we'd probably run out of steam or things to talk about by then, but it didn't happen. In fact, it's busier than ever now.
2: It's it's crazy, yeah. Uh, we had people like, oh, you're going to run out of guests and everything. And it's like, we're nearly hitting 300. And, you know, I thought we were going to run out of news as well, but uh, there's mm. a new news item every single week and quite a few, you know, there's a lot going on. It's like a, it's a bit of an industry, isn't it? That's kind of retro tech and nostalgia industry uh you know old computing add-ons kind of uh little mini systems and all of these devices that are coming out and you know when we started a lot of it was like homebrew and kind of mm. homemade stuff and people just creating cool little products but now it's actually companies on it and uh commercial
1: which is kind of crazy yeah it definitely has developed into almost a, a subgenre of gaming i think retro gaming
3: yeah, definitely. And, and and you know what also helps? Like, you know, people thought like, oh, they're going to run out of guests and stuff like that. It helps that like we've been going that long now. Stuff's becoming retro. What wasn't retro when we started? <laughs> yeah. So we can start interviewing them <laughs> last. So this episode is retro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're right, though.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we're covering stuff like, you know, moving into PlayStation 2 and GameCube and that era, which, you know, when we started this six years ago, a lot of people said, yeah, maybe the Dreamcast didn't get away with that being retro, but PlayStation 2 isn't yet. Now I think, you know, PS2 being over 20 years old now is definitely in that camp of retro, even though there are some people that would disagree with that. But I think from our perspective, it definitely is. But it does mean we've just got so many different games and so many different genres to cover. And I think actually um, over the almost six years that we've done this, probably we haven't covered football games quite as much as we should have because it's a massive genre.
2: We haven't covered sports games as much as we should have, really. And, uh, yeah, I think particularly football games. And uh, today we are talking to an absolute legend, and that's Dino Dini, and he's behind the kickoff series of games. And, you know, that's a really fast football game. If you've ever played kickoff, it's like it runs at a really high frame rate. And there was a whole series of them, absolutely fantastic games. I'm an Amiga fan, and uh, I loved kickoff. You know, there's a lot of people raised. On the kickoff series, and Dino, he he was the main man behind it, and it was for Anko Software as well, which was a yeah. a small kind of Dartford based um, little software house, and 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 we've had Steve Screech actually on the podcast previously, and it's it's good to get Dino on because we heard a lot about the kind of stories and the stuff that were going on, and uh, you know this game this game really made Anko Software, didn't
1: it? Yeah, well, I remember, cause, I mean, I'm you know hands up, I'm not really a football fan at all. Um, you know, I watch it when the World Cup's so on down the football, whatever. But actually in terms of football games, I play something like FIFA and I'm completely lost. I've got no idea what I'm doing. But games like Kickoff, you know, because it was such a It was more like an arcade game, really. You didn't have to really know the rules of football. And, you know, it was a very fast action based game and you could play it. You know, it was a great couch gaming experience. And I found the same, you know, we've done an episode with John Herra about sensible soccer in the early days of this show. Those are kind of the two games that were not only similar in the regard of they were both arcade kind of games and very fast, but also they're actually pitted against each other as rivals back in the day mainly by the magazines probably
2: yeah and also like um he worked on the player manager series and stuff so there was a lot of kind of using the same engine and uh, a lot of different versions of the game and stuff but yeah there was this this great war that was a uh, that was kind of hyped up in the press and stuff and, and and we definitely talk about that this is a very open interview from Dino and uh you know it's 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 really great of him to come on and chat to us
1: I will say that you're right, because um, I remember I went to a video games museum in Rome um, probably about five years ago. I think we'd just started doing the show then, um, called Vigamus, and I actually spotted a BBC Micro that was actually Dino Dini's old BBC Micro that he donated to the museum, and he'd signed it and everything. And I remember thinking at the time, he'd be a great guest on the podcast. It's actually taken us about you know five years to um, actually get Dino on. Um, but actually, it was worth the wait, because... At the time we asked him, it was when their kickoff revival came out, and as you'll hear in the interview, that was a quite a difficult time for him. And the the journey from those original kickoff games through the last like twenty five years or so, it hasn't been all smooth sailing. And actually, Dino, this is I'd say this is one of the most open and honest interviews that we've ever had from a guest. I was, on the I was show. about
2: to say that this is one of the most frank kind of open interviews, and uh, you know, real pleasure that he's actually come on and talk to us and um you know what we like to do on this show is kind of get people's full story warts and all and uh, this is definitely that so uh, i hope you're all going to enjoy this episode
1: yeah we've all said that we never take slides we let people just come on and give their version of the story and let us know their history so that's what this show is all about it's capturing those stories you know and hopefully people can listen to this podcast in a hundred years after we're long gone and kind of hear what was happening at this time in gaming. That's kind of the aim that it's um, all preserved there. So it's going to be a really interesting episode. Dino Dinny, the kickoff legend, he's coming up in around 25 minutes from now. Now, it hasn't actually been a great week for um, everyone in the retro gaming community. Of course, we did hear some very sad news. Um, there's someone who I know, he hangs out in our Discord and um, and, and who's listened to the show before. Um, and actually, I think we maybe spoke to him by getting him on at some point. Uh, this is Mark Fix's Stuff, who you probably know from um, Neil, RMC's channel. He regularly appears on there. He had a bit of a tragedy over the weekend, didn't he? Yeah,
2: so Mark's on um, Neil's channel and actually... Mark was kind of Neil's bubble during lockdown RMC. Yeah. So, you know, he had him in the museum and stuff. And Mark, as he as his channel says, fixes stuff. But um I, I saw an amazingly um emotional video and you know, just watching it, you kind of see how gut-wrenching it is. His his house has actually been completely gutted by fire and the poor guy, um, you know, he had a flood before, so his house he he was getting it repaired and fixed up. Uh, Luckily, nobody was in the actual house, but um, Mm. yeah, it's been totally gutted and poor Mark man, you know, um, it's just tragic when something like that happens with all your memories and uh, just your whole life pretty much going. So there's been a fundraiser that's been uh, running for Mark and
1: amazingly, they've uh, hit 20k already. Yeah, I'll stick it out on Friday. Then, if it updates, I'll um, I'll put it out on Twitter as well if people want to check it out. But um, I mean, you know, you watch his latest video and it shows you can just see like the shell of a PlayStation and his MSX is just melted on the floor. And as guys who have a collection of retro systems and collection of retro games, you know, it, it's your worst nightmare not only losing everything in your house, your whole collection going in one fell swoop as well it's It's always a
2: worry isn't it because some of these machines that we're using are like 30 40 years old and stuff and uh yeah you know it's it's uh, be safe folks you know be safe out there and 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 sensible with what you're doing
1: that is one thing i've seen come out of this the amount of people now that are suddenly like well maybe i'm going to check those power supplies and maybe i'm going to make sure there's a smoke alarm working and you know so in a way it could help other people you know the fact that it's obviously a massive tragedy that he's gone through this but a good you know reminder to, to check things over and make sure everything's electrically safe uh, but of course if you're doing a donate to mark i mean it's the whole community is coming together to help him get back on his feet again so we'll link that up in our show notes the latest fundraiser and uh, hope you can rebuild mark best of luck Now, before we get into the news stories this week, let's give a huge thank you to one of our lovely friends who support the Retro Hour podcast. And this is our good mates at MonsterJoysticks.com. Have you got your Monster Joystick nearby, Ravi? Uh, Yeah,
2: I have. And I've got it attached to my Amiga at the moment because it does one vital function, which is it remaps up to jump to another button so it actually uh, makes my Amiga exper- experience really good I'd say it's probably the best controller I've had for the Amiga and uh you know there's been lots out there but uh this one is my arcade one of choice and I'm running it on my CD32 at the moment absolutely awesome kit and it's got those uh genuine Samoa arcade parts as well
1: you know when you were a kid wasn't it always a dream to have a proper arcade joystick at home a clicky oh, joystick That's
3: a what cli- I, mean. I was gonna say a clicky joystick not just a joystick, a clicky one, Dan.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had like a zip stick in a Competition Pro, but a proper arcade stick, like the yeah. one, yeah, micro switch and everything. I always wanted one like that at home. And now finally, you know, if that was your childhood dream as well, you can get one now. Like you said, it's genuine arcade parts in here. They offer a wide range of quality arcade joysticks. And actually they do it in a couple of variants as well. They do retro gaming joystick kits that work with your classic machines, like the Amiga, the Atari ST, the C64, the Spectrum. They do versions as well for consoles like the CD32, PC Engine, the Mega Drive, and they also do these incredible, which I've got one of these in my living room hooked up to my TV, um, an all-in-one nine-button Raspberry Pi arcade stick. Now, this is where the Raspberry Pi can actually live inside the joystick, and it gives you essentially a truly portable quality arcade machine. You know, you just take the power supply around, HDMI cable, plug it in to any TV, And you're playing your arcade games. You put MAME on the Raspberry Pi. And we've got deluxe kits as well with the genuine San arcade parts designed to survive the most extreme usage, which if you've ever seen me play games like Mortal Kombat, which I know uh, Joe's definitely witnessed... It needs to be rugged to survive my uh, I was my rage. say. They need
3: to be rugged to survive the rage quits, but they definitely do. They definitely do <laughs> yeah. survive. Yeah, it. I think
2: that's Joe's uh, Christmas present in the back there. Uh,
3: I was going to say, I, I was just, I was just looking at this going. I hope I get one of these.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, they're they're really precise as well, you know, especially if you want to play those classic arcade games and that muscle memory is all still met there. I mean, you know, going to get any lag or anything like that, and even do some more um, Budget-friendly arcade part options as well. And you can assemble the kits yourself. You only need a screwdriver. You don't have to solder or anything like that. Really straightforward. Even I can put these together. So you can check them out and support the podcast. Their link is monsterjoysticks.com. And a big thank you to our mates at Monster Joysticks for their support of our show. Now, the time this podcast comes out, actually, a lot of people are getting hyped for um, the N64 and Mega Drive games that come to the Nintendo Switch. I believe it's um, October 25th, like next Monday. But actually, there are other emulators that already kind of run secretly in the background on the Switch, including a Sega Saturn emulator that's been used for a few retro games on there that's now actually been exploited and turned into pretty much a full Saturn emulator that you can run a load of games on the Switch.
3: This really confused me when, because you guys did the news this week. I didn't do the news this week. That's why there's no Castlevania or Resident Evil. and uh, <laughs> And I was like, Wait, what? What have I missed? The Sega Saturns on the Switch? Like, when when did this happen? Like, you know, I saw the announcements last, you know, the other week for the Mega Drive and the N sixty four. But no, no, it's not not quite what I thought. So, like like you say, Dan, um, there was a bundle released earlier this year um, of Cotton Two, Cotton Boomerang, and Guardian Force, which are all Sega Saturn shoot 'em ups, um, which was both tweet, uh, both ported to PS four and the Switch, and apparently they weren't the best ports they've got quite a bit of lag to mm. them so some fans as they always do have hacked hacked the game and found that they are running on a sega saturn uh emulator um and the technology the emulation technology is called zebra engine and essentially mm. they found that you can just plonk any old sega saturn game in their rom and it works really 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 well apparently but apparently it's a variant of a of a engine called SSF. It's actually an open source or sorry a closed source emulator that's been around for about 20 years. Um yeah, so I've been heard around a while. but apparently it works really, really well to put other games in there. Now I'm just hoping that like, you know, Nintendo don't do any sort of patch to like brick your Switch when you do this. But that sounds awesome to me. You know, there's a, a really, really cool hour-long a video about it that will be you know in the show notes which i haven't got around to watching yet because like i say I, I was completely baffled by this but this looks absolutely awesome now
2: ravi's now correct me if i'm wrong on this ravi or, or, I, or I nailed it there yeah you've you've pretty much nailed it um awesome because it's, it's 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 a tough one to emulate uh, yeah. the saturn because it's, it's got those two cpus and, yeah yeah um uh the, the the one thing i'd say is yeah they found it inside this it's a game GBA Temp forums, which if you haven't checked out GBA Temp, wicked, that's where I get all my Wii U modding stuff from because they're always modding absolutely Mm. everything on on that site. So it's really, really good resource and cool community. And they found out if you've got a homebrew um, switch, then you can actually swap out the game that is within this uh, emulator Uh, So it has
1: to be a hack switch then you've got to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So
2: so you'd swap out Cotton 2 or one of them with one of the games. Now, the thing is, this is like really accurate with all of the games. Like uh, You said there's a lag on there. That's an input lag. Mm. But if you overclock the switch, um, the input lag's like greatly reduced. So if you use like, you know, you've got a homebrew set up on there. You've got a little overclocker app. So if you actually overclock it, then then it has the power to deal with it. Because, you know, what, I guess it takes a lot of power to um, accurately kind of do the uh, Saturn one. And it's pretty mad that they released it with that bit of input lag, to be honest, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it looks like it can just about emulate the Saturn by the sounds of it, you know, without overclocking the machine. They're saying here they've tried a bunch of games in it as well. And actually some of them run really well. Uh, they've got Knights into Dreams running on there. Panzer Dragoon is running really good. Uh, Burning Rangers as well. Clockwork Knight—they um, run perfectly. But it said there are some games that actually do still suffer from that input lag. Okay. So I imagine it's ones that are probably a bit more demanding. Yeah, but, you know, is, it's is not It's—it's well,
2: it's if you overclock it. So I watched a great video on MVG, and he was showing the kind of process of um, how to do it and how to get it working. And he said actually, like ninety percent of them are working well without graphical glitches and stuff. And I don't know how many frames it is. I think it was a four frame input lag, but you can reduce it down to like a frame or a couple of frames, uh, which is well impressive. And, you know, this may lead to um, a kind of Saturn emulator coming out commercially then, Um, but I don't know. You know, they'll probably do it, so it would
1: all be individual releases, wouldn't they? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that. It's like the fact that there are some great games that, you know, obviously stuff has come out on a lot of the stores and stuff over the years, but there's still, I mean, for example, these, you know, shmup games, a lot of them aren't available on other platforms and it kind of feels like there is definitely a untapped kind of resource there in the Saturn library. A lot of games are kind of I, locked into that system.
3: There, I think there's definitely a market for it as well because of, you know, th- there is more expensive consoles out there, but the Saturn is really expensive to collect for. Like some of these games are like ridiculously hard to get, out whatever, ridiculously expensive. And there isn't any, you know... From my knowledge, like um, Panzer Dragoon Saga is like a seven hundred pound, thousand dollar game, and I don't think there's any remasters or ports of that game. So I can see why there is that market for people wanting to emulate Sega Saturns on the Switch and stuff. So they they are definitely missing missing a trick, you know, with some of these games. But I'm just wondering, from you know Ravi telling us, then maybe it's because the quality isn't quite just there yet, you know, with like the dual C, you know, the dual CPUs and stuff like that, you know. Maybe Sega do want to do a Saturn mini and stuff, but they're struggling. Who knows?
2: Yeah, and it's Could and it's be. weird that they kind of do this release as well, just shoving the four games on an emulator and doing it. Maybe they were mm-hmm. trying to do it quicker or something. But uh, yeah, it it does seem like a little little kind of leak, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, or yeah, or, or they they've made it kind of easy. It's interesting. I, I I'd love to see what they're going to do with this. Uh, some of the Switch tinkerers.
1: Yeah, it, it does kind of feel like Sega kind of ignored the Saturn in the grand scheme of things, whether it's something they just rather forget about because it, it was a bit of a flop. Um, but like you said, Joe, yeah, it might just be the fact that they, they haven't got it running as smoothly as they want just yet. Maybe that will come. Yeah, so maybe,
0: yeah.
1: It would be nice to see more of that. Um, I must admit, I didn't hack my Switch. Nah. I've watched videos on it <laughs> and it looks like tempting, but yeah, I, I haven't got the balls to do it. If I'm honest, no, i give it to Ravi. I would, yeah, I wouldn't want to touch it. It took me that <laughs> long to get to it one. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks dead easy as well. So, uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye on that. Very cool indeed. Now, we've been talking about these um, mini arcades. You know, there seems to be a new one every week at the moment. Uh, this is one, actually, I used to play in my local video shop when mm-hmm. I was a kid who randomly got um, a Capcom 1942 cabinet in, I remember, for a summer um, probably about 1990, 91, they got one in, and they go in there and play it on a Saturday. Um, a game I was never very good at, but um, again, when you're talking about shoot 'em up games, I've always quite liked shoot 'em ups, and that was one of the biggest back in the day. And now it's got a home release, a mini arcade cabinet that looks actually really nice. Um, this is a replicade of
3: 1942. Yeah, this this took me straight back. This did. I, I'm I have not played the 1942 games and 1943 and stuff like that very much. But I remember playing them on an arcade in Viola Ventura when I was like 10 years old Mm. with all the, you know, the wood paneling and they've captured the wood paneling really well on this. It looks amazing. So I read the review of it and I had to kind of go hunting a little bit to kind of, you know, find out what the crack is. So it's only a 10 inch arcade machine, isn't it? It's only Mm. a, a little tabletop one. And you know, I'm getting mixed kind of feelings from it. Like it's $150, which feels a little bit expensive, but it does come with a mini arcade stick that you can plug into it, you know, and you know, it's portable and it comes with a charging kit and all this kind of stuff. Um, And it does have 1943 built into it as well, which is really cool, which was, you know, some would say was the sequel was better. There was a lot more, there was more, you know, power, power ups and stuff like that in the game. But I think they did a good choice in kind of, going for the 1942 aesthetic of it and having the wood the panelling and, you know, like the original arcade cabinet and everything like that. But you were looking online as well, weren't you, Dan? And
1: there's, there's a lot of mixed feelings
3: about the actual cabinet itself, isn't
1: there? Yeah, well, I mean, this is um, a company called New Wave Toys. And we mm. have talked about them before when they did that. Um, it was a Dragon's Lair mm. um, replica that they did a while ago, which, um, you know, looked very cool. Um, pricing of them, I think, what was this, about $120? $150, 149 $1, um, $1, This one, yeah. It kind of silently came out. I mean, this has been on the market by the looks of it for a couple of weeks now. First, mm. I'd heard of it um, when Ravi found this today. Um, and again, I'm reading reviews here that say it looks really good. You know, it's definitely got that aesthetic that reminds you of the original system. But there is a review here on um, a website called Game Tyrant that I'll link up in our show notes. And they're saying actually, when you get a bit closer, it's a bit cheap and plasticky, plasticky looking. And the back of it hasn't got much attention. You know, it kind of looks like they've cheaped out a bit on that. But also the fact that it's got some um, HDMI problems as well. He's talking about the fact he's tried to hook it up to a bigger screen TV. And uh, apparently the, the display keeps cutting out and it takes a few attempts to get it displaying. Could just be an issue with his individual unit. But he's saying the actual screen is so small you know, being that little 10-inch cabinet, that really the only way that you can play it comfortably is by hooking it up to a bigger screen TV and actually using the controller rather than the one that's on the cabinet. So in many ways, it kind of feels like it's more of a... something you're going to buy and just put on your shelf as a decoration, Mm. I imagine, rather than playing it. But yeah, I mean, it looks amazing, I've got to say. But um, yeah, I think there are probably better ways to play 1942 if you're a fan of the original game. Um, Something here, though, that might help you with your uh, retro gaming habit, this is... um, a company called um, Analog, who obviously we've covered them quite a bit in the past as well, who want to build the definitive operating system for retro gaming. Now, this is
2: quite a cool idea. I was looking into this, and this was absolutely everywhere with with um, Analog. All their kind of stuff seems to go everywhere, and you know they're really good at promotion and stuff. And they've created the uh, Analog NT before, and uh, the Analog Pocket, which is a cool little retro gaming device. Um, uh, which kind of does Game Boy games and tons of different ones. Now, this is this is a library, um, but the way that the library works is, you know, you'd actually put your game in, and then the OS will find information about that game. So it will probably read the ROM or the code that's within the game and uh, link to that, like, hex file and uh, withdraw information off the internet or or off databases that it has about that Kind of like title. Plex does
1: with IMDb.
2: Yeah, yeah, but like, you know, you actually put it in and it will be like, right, this is your rare stadium events games and here's all the info about stadium events. And it also enables you to um, save setups within there as well. So if you have like on some systems, because I'm assuming this is going to come out on all of the analog systems, it enables you to have save states already connected with that game um if you have bluetooth controllers as well um it would like automatically select the bluetooth and the key maps that you've already put in there so it it becomes a huge kind of index and you can also share a playlist as well so you can share with your friends you know a list of what titles you've been playing and it's quite nice it's like it's adding extra features to those original carts and giving you more information like, uh, box art and, uh, user sets, uh, that other users are using and di- different ways to play the game as well. Quite, quite like, you know, um, if you played steam yeah. and, uh, you have different user profiles for games, like, uh, for the control systems and stuff like that. Um, you know, and, and, and it kind of adds a little bit of extra life to the game, um, as it goes on, they're hoping that people are going to add to this, and it's going to become like a kind of default base for for kind of games and information, and uh, everybody using their different systems, like putting a cart into the uh, analog NT or you know their their um, Nintendo clone and uh, or their Mega Drive clone, or whichever system they're doing, um, will then be connected to this and kind of adding to the database as well
1: yeah, and the saying as well if you you know for example you find something weird at a, you know a yard sale you can put that information into your pocket and it'll find out what version of the game is you know is it um how rare it is is it once in a lifetime find the saying here as well and also it can get all the rare different versions that you know you might find in uh torrents and that kind of thing and promotional versions of the game so it will help you track down specific reg- regions or versions of games as well as revisions that might be quite rare so it does sound like they're building a massive database essentially that you could you can find anything you want to know about these games on there
2: yeah kind of like maybe a, a wikipedia of gaming or something that is uh, mm, built into know, the system yeah that people contribute to and then i guess the more people that use it the better it will get and the more accurate it will get and the more unusual titles that will be played on it and stuff but they need to sell the hardware as well and i hope that they have like dedicated team members actually kind of working on this os because I can imagine there can be a lot of errors and stuff and there can be a lot of similarities. But also, I guess maybe you could have stuff like different language versions of games and uh, stuff that would add into that or or tell you what's kind of available on that special about that cart and, uh, you know, having the Japanese version, why why that's special? Because a lot of their devices also um, play multi-region carts as well.
1: It sounds, you know, like a massive project, um, and they reckon that the the analog pocket is going to be kind of the first place that we'll see this analog OS. That's going to kind of be the showcase of it. But yeah, I mean, because c- there is all this all this information is obviously out there if you know where to find it. But you guys probably the same. I mean, if you want to find out something about a game, you know, particularly again, it's not that common. Sometimes going through threads on forums and tweets, you know, there can be so much conflicting information out there. And even Wikipedia, I mean, not everything's on Wikipedia, but even that can be wrong, you know, a lot of the time. It's actually having, especially if it's kind of, you know, community verified information, having it all in one place.
2: That can be quite a valuable service, I think. What, what do you think about it, Joe? Because you're going to be one of the kind of, like, people that would really be into this, if, if it was with Game Boy games and stuff like that.
3: I, I really like the idea that you mentioned about, like, the different variants of the games, because, you know, especially in trying to think of some games off the top of my head right now, but like Splatterhouse for the TurboGrafx-16 and Splatterhouse 2 for the Mega Drive and stuff, you know, the Japanese, the Americans, or the PAL region games had different graphical things in it, depending on what region you lived in, like, you know, different censorships and stuff in the games and like with Streets of Rage and then the Japanese version Bare Knuckle, like with Streets of Rage 3 and Bare Knuckle 3, they were loads of different like censorships in the game, you know, when they got ported over to the other countries. So it'd be really interesting to just to have that all in one place in one massive library. You know, like Dan says, sometimes it's not easy. I mean, those games are common games that people know about, but it's cool sometimes to just kind of be able to flick through that on a database. Like, I know the Mega Drive Mini was really good for that. Like, you could play the different Japanese and PAL versions. Like, you could flick through it on the Mega Drive Mini, but that's, like, what, 50 games? Yeah. If you had that on, like, 10,000 games. You know, obviously, I know not every game's got a variant but you know a lot of retro games do so i think that'd be really cool and you know it's yes. kind of kind of similar to us like you know what, what we're trying to do with you know archiving this kind
2: of stuff so it's out there on the internet it's, it's very similar to that as well well they need to have a link so you put a game in and then the developer pops up on a retro hour interview and you can listen yeah to the interview. <laughs> there you go there you go you found the usb yeah.
1: so uh yeah but that, that could it could be a system seller you know for um these little analogue devices, you know, if, if it gets big enough, I think. So um, I'll link up that article in our show notes, along with everything else at retrohour.com. Now, just before we chat to Dino Dini, um, what about this? This could be the most ambitious Game Boy game that we've ever talked about on this show. In fact, a Game Boy game that requires two separate cartridges.
2: This this game is absolutely mental. There's so much to kind of explain about this game. Um it's pretty mad, um, Joe. Have you have you had a little look at this one? Yeah, so this is Shape the Shapeshifter Two. So this is the second
3: game in the Shapeshifter trilogy, um, which have all been done by uh, a solo developer called Green Boy Games. Um, so the first game came out on the Game Boy and the NES, but this is the second game, obviously, and he's putting it out on Game Boy. But apparently, this is the first ever. Game Boy game that's going to be released on two cartridges to play. Now I'm not too sure how that under how like how that works. Like I've been reading into it and I've I've not got to that part yet. But like I don't know if you know Ravi, but like
2: yeah, t- it, it it seems pretty mad. It's like quite smart actually. Um, it's it's adventure codes. So okay, the, the whole idea of it is
3: because it's it's like- a, it's, a, it's like a Monkey Island adventure game isn't it like yeah kind of yeah. but
2: it's like also like one of those choose your own adventure books yeah yeah, yeah you'd go around and you get different chapters and stuff where one of the cartridges will produce a code and they have got here um lovebird would would uh, appear on the one cartridge and then you get the second cartridge and you'd enter that code to kind of branch to that point um so you're not actually it's the, the game Boy is not saving anything in memory you're just getting to one point on one cartridge, and then yeah. that that trigger word "lovebird." Uh, you take the cartridge out and you put the other one in, and you type "lovebird" into that, and it would like mean that the the story continues. Um, Got yeah, the kind of adventure continues. I think it's quite a smart little way of uh, of kind of linking them together, and, and I guess getting a lot more game out of it because the whole idea of this game is uh, That that you you're a shapeshifter and any animal that you touch you you change into. So they're going to have a lot of animals in
3: there. And then that's to like solve the puzzles. You know, you know, I was watching the trailer earlier on. He becomes a beaver, and then he can go somewhere where the beaver can go after he touches the beaver, which I thought was quite funny. But they've absolutely smashed their Kickstarter goal. Um, You know, I think it only launched on the sixteenth of October. So at the point of recording, three days ago. And right now they're on fifty-seven thousand dollars of initial goal of seven thousand dollars, so absolutely smashed it. So there must be a lot of love for the first for the first shapeshifter game that you did. And it
2: seems like it's all mini games here as well. So like with the different animals, and there is like mm. I think there is about twelve that I am seeing here or something. It's quite an epic amount. Um, it's like mole digs holes in the ground, and then a chameleon you are the king of disguise. But also Daisy, you just decorate the grass if you're a daisy a, a rock you can
1: be a rock hard as oh, a wow.
2: rock my dream come true
1: <laughs> and i've got to say you know graphically the animation on this looks incredible it's jaw dropping for the game oh, Boy. God, the yeah. amount of detail in here the,
3: there's there's like pixel art like it's the only way I could describe it but like some of the uh character panels you know like kind of like when they're talking to you and stuff like that just look unreal like i can't believe the amount of detail that they've got into this game like i mean i know we've come a long way since like the game boy came out in 1989 and it's over two cartridges but it looks unreal like it looks so good
1: and it's coming out on a physical cartridge yeah. as well you can get yeah, all yeah, them or yeah. a ROM you know if you just want a, a ROM to play but um yeah you know the box art and everything it looks amazing it even looks like they might have like a code wheel or something in there as well at yeah. the packaging so that real old school adventure feel I love adventure games anyway so um yeah this would be definitely something I'd be up for and uh like you said I mean it's only a couple of days into this Kickstarter already extremely popular but if you want to get involved in that I'll uh, put that in our show notes at the theretrohour.com Now, let's just take a quick moment to give a huge thank you to another big supporter of the Retro Hour podcast. And this is, of course, the wonderful crew at Retro Gamer magazine. Now, Retro Gamer, of course, the essential read every single month. If you like our show, no doubt about it, you have to read Retro Gamer magazine. They cover so much in there. Uh, And in fact, this month, it is a real celebration of um, an incredible game that I can't believe is 20 years old at the moment. This is super monkey ball they've got a really in-depth celebration of uh, sega's fantastic party game and find out all about the new remaster and the history of the game as well uh were you a fan of that game back in the day joe yeah i really like super monkey ball but what really scared me then
3: uh was when you said this game is 20 years old super mario world came to my mind which mm. is 30 years old which <laughs> made me feel really old so yeah i i touched on it at the start of the episode then that these games are now retro from when we started but that sounds awesome like the complete what is it? it's like the complete history of super monkey ball yeah that's who ultimate would you guy. play joe ultimate guy who did i play i played the big guy of course i did you oh gone gone
2: because i all I, the, I me me baby and Gong gone i was gonna say either the big guy or the baby
1: yeah man all the way <laughs> Well, they cover loads of stuff in Metro Gamer every month as well. Not only have you got that, you've also got the making of Theme Park as well that was um, one of my favourite bullfrog games back in the day. That was so much fun. Ramp up the, um, what was it, ramp up the salt on the drinks and then yeah. end up
2: buying layers, yeah. but then they... Oh, puke everywhere. So got salt on the fries, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was it,
1: wasn't it, yeah. <laughs> At Mortal Kombat 2 as well. They've Actually, it's really interesting, actually, they're talking about um, Mortal Kombat 2 memories and kind of uh, <laughs> the harsh lessons that that game taught you back in the day. And also, um, you know, talking about game cheats and stuff and how you'd learn stuff on Mortal Kombat 2 back in the day. Um, they've also got stuff like um, a report on the Famicom here as well, how Metal Slug 3 pushed the limits of the Neo Geo back in the day, a collector's guide about the Mega CD. You know, if you've got games in your collection, these are going up in value all the time as well. And a nice little feature on the Sega Nomad. But actually, you know, the Nomad, that's something that I've looked at at uh, retro gaming shows before, and I've had it on, and I thought, God, that looks really cool. I wouldn't I, mind I, getting I've hold of one. I've drooled
2: over those, especially the ones where they've done the uh, new muck mods as well and uh you know i never really knew about the nomads back in the day so it'd be really nice to actually
1: read about them yeah and if you're thinking of um maybe some uh retro gaming uh related gifts obviously christmas only a few weekends away now which is crazy and they also do like um a retro gaming roundup as well collector's guide and things you should be looking out for if you want to treat yourself as well Uh, they do great little conferences where the team all get together I love that collector's corner as well where they focus on um, different people's retro gaming collections and talk about their, their jewels in the crown and you know it's really interesting community feel to the magazine too so if you don't read retro gamer already or maybe just pick it up from the supermarket when you're out why don't you make sure that you get it every month and support our podcast and actually if you take up this offer not only will you get a subscription to retro gamer magazine but also you will get a free controller either an n64 tribute or a mega drive bluetooth controller now you can pick which one you want the mega drive bluetooth controller works with windows mac raspberry pi ios and switch and the tribute 64 one is available in either usb form or you can use it with a classic n64 port and really you get you know a much better controller for the original n64
2: oh they they look beautiful i really love that mega drive one and the fact that it kind of works on pretty much everything there, you know, Windows, Mac, Raspberry Pi, iOS and Switch. That's like, wow, you know, uh, I, I actually really need one of those at the moment, so I'm going to take them up on this deal.
1: Well, we did say before about, you know, the fact those Switch games, you know, the uh, N64 Mega Drive games are launched next week. You know, perfect for that as well, if you're going to play the uh, Switch online with those. So subscribe today to Retro Gamer Magazine and choose your free retro controller. All you have to do is go to magazinesdirect.com forward slash retropod. And if you're already subscribed, I mean, you could gift the mag to somebody else and keep the controller for yourself. And you'll get six months of Retro Gamer with the retro controller absolutely free. Support the Retro Hour by taking up this incredible offer at Magazines Direct. And a big thank you to our friends at Retro Gamer for their continued support. Now, if you've been a patron, you'd have been treated to um, a bit of extra content over the last few minutes, wouldn't you? You would have been. You would have definitely
3: been. You know what? You would have also been tweeted to our very, very sexy After Hours episode that came out
1: this week as well. Yes, which um, we went back to the year 1998 and we did just over an hour sharing our memories and talking about the the technology and gaming that came out in that year you know often when we do these kind of retro years episodes of the after hours podcast i don't actually realize quite how much happens in that year till we start researching it i'm like my god that was you know, it, it makes like modern years just feel like totally quiet you know yeah. if you look at what happened in like 98 99 2000
3: yeah i was really worried that i wouldn't have much to talk about because of you know i I, I, don't, I don't want to be like oh i was only like nine years old but i was a bit like oh god like i'm not gonna have loads to talk about but You couldn't shut me up, to be honest.
1: So, the (laughs) movies alone
2: that came out,
1: yeah. So um, if you want to get access to that, we do every month our patrons' exclusive podcast, the Retro Hour After Hours, which is now up to um, episode number 17. If you're back on Patreon as a gold member or above, you get access to that each month. Everybody gets the usual podcast early most weeks. You get it ad-free as well. You get extra patrons' exclusive content in there. I think last week, not only did they get an extra story, but about... 10 minutes extra on the interview It's about 15 minutes of extra retro hour goodness that our patrons got last week too but also you'll be able to watch episode 300 of this podcast live as we record it next weekend
3: so if you want to see me picking my nose <laughs> see my retro <laughs> boxer shorts <laughs> Ravi in his retro boxer shorts and Dan trying to put fires out <laughs> putting it all together now I'm joking I'm really really looking forward to it It's going to go
1: fine Joe don't be nervous <laughs> So uh we are going to do really it's going to be a fly on the wall so we're going to put a camera up in the corner of this studio The lads are coming over here in my st- new studio first time we've actually recorded a show in person together for almost like 2 years now um, which yeah. is gonna be amazing fun uh gonna be joined by a bunch of special guests you know that our patrons know about but we'll announce maybe on the main podcast next week and um, you're gonna really enjoy it it's just gonna be a celebration of this show we're gonna get a lot of you guys on as well hopefully so it's gonna be a complete giggle if you want to get involved in the show as we record it back us on patreon everyone will get access to that and also you can come to our monthly Patreon hangouts as well um we did one of those last weekend and that was i think probably our best one yet
2: Oh, yeah, they're getting better and better, aren't they? Someone tweeted afterwards, I think it was Gideon uh, Tebbit, and he said, um, you know, it's it's like a pub meetup and it's getting more and more like that where we're all just sitting
1: around a giant table chatting about retro stuff. It's really good. Yeah, so we do that every month as well. All patrons are welcome to that. So really doing it, though, to support this podcast. If you can just, you know, spare a couple of quid, couple of dollars, a couple of euros a month, it all goes back into the running cost of this show and really, really helps us out. And uh, it will ensure that this show will continue past episode 300 and into 2022. And, of course, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming. It is the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And a big shout this week to some of our latest supporters... Nut Elphicet, King Diesel, Marcus Benson, Renee Cabalos, and Matt Godbolt, who all backed us on Patreon. We hugely appreciate your support, and if you'd like to do the same, head on to our website at theretrohour.com. All the details are on there. While we're talking about supporting the show, we appreciate not everyone can back us on Patreon, but if you would like to do something to help us out leave a little review on um, your podcast client of choice and you know, that gives a, a five star rating on Spotify. Or if you can leave a text review on Apple podcasts, I think um, our last one was in September, so we haven't had one for almost a month. They really helped the show out and help us, uh, get into the podcast chart and uh, one day we will overtake gardener's question time i'm sure uh, with your help but if you'd uh, just take a couple of minutes that will really really help us out and obviously won't cost you anything however you help out the show we really appreciate it and of course we'll keep bringing you incredible guests every week like this week we talk kickoff with the legendary dino dini and he's next on the retro hour podcast <laughs>
3: If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Bloomingdale's, Levi's, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.
0: The biggest international festival for the business of podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus creator meetups, networking and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com.
1: You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for the highlight of the show when we welcome on our very special guest and today we are absolutely honoured to be joined by a veteran of the industry and anyone that loves football video games is going to know our guest today. Let's welcome to the show the wonderful Dino Dini. How are you doing, Dino? Very good, thank you. I'm blushing. <laughs> well, listen, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Obviously, you know, massive fans of Kick Off, and we'll get into that very soon. Just a bit of background on you, though. I mean, um, where, where did you grow up? I know you've got a, an Italian background. Is that right?
4: Yeah, both my parents, um, Italian. So they moved to the UK um, shortly before I was born. And uh my father um, went to work at, a, a, I think it was submarine cables. So it's, it's, the irony there was he was working on, on you know, the laying of, of, of the technology behind undersea cables. Uh, so that was a big thing back then, which would be like 56-ish years ago. And then, of course, over the years, uh, that have gradually got phased out because, you know, uh, went to uh, satellite technology and, and, and radio technology and so on. But the irony is, is that it, it, it came back again. Uh, so, if if my father was working now, he'd be working on internet uh, undersea cables. But uh, yeah, so he he got um, his doctorate from the University of Pisa, and then he f- found a job in the UK, and they came over. So, and then I was born in London. It's pretty um,
2: amazing. Uh, I've I've mentioned before to people that you know the internet's through cables under the sea and uh, you know a lot of people are just absolutely amazed and they're like they they don't believe it's still kind of just a, a giant line essentially yeah
4: in the end it's because it's still it came back full circle as being the the best way to get really high bandwidth communication and um, reliable communication so yeah it, it is it is quite amazing so yeah so he was working in testing the components if I remember rightly in his lab Because they obviously you lay down these things uh, and they've got to last a long time, right? So the QA on the components that go into building the electronics, because the thing to understand is, is that you can't just lay a cable from one side of the Atlantic to the other as just one cable. You have to have repeaters along the way. So you have to have boxes with electronics in them to boost the signal every so often because otherwise it won't work. So he was testing the components that went under the sea. So simulating, you know, how long they would last and stuff yeah. like that.
2: Yeah. I was, I was wondering then, what was your first kind of computer experience or your first exposure to computers, really?
4: Yeah. I, if I, as I remember, I was into electronics like from about five or so. Computers weren't really an option. They were just things I read about in books from the library. I remember reading about magnetic core memory. It gives you an idea because, I mean, that's so obsolete. Um, it, was a, it was a major thing. It's like little little beads of ferrite with wires fed through that would be magnetized. Each bit is a tiny piece of <laughs> tiny bead. I remember reading about all of that. But, I mean, you know, home computers didn't exist or anything. But then when uh, I was about 12 or so, um, I started trying to build a computer using... Uh, 6800 microprocessor and it was a lot of work and i didn't i only got so far and then there was the acorn atom no acorn system one sorry yeah so that's acorn released a micro what we'd call a microcontroller today and uh, it was made with two pcbs the lower one was you know cpu memory rom uh, peripheral input output devices the kinds of things that you know, If, if anybody is uh, programming an Arduino, that's the right way to pronounce it, or those PIC, P-I-C m- miniature microprocessors that you get all in one chip. So it's basically the same as one of those, only it's a whole PCB, not that big, uh, about six inches by about four. Mm. And there were two layers of this. The top one was the keyboard and display, and the display was a eight-digit, seven-segment calculator display. And so, and you had to program it with in in machine code, obviously, because uh, there were no compilers. What would you run it on? Uh, and uh, um, yeah, that's where I started. Uh, that was the first computer I owned, and I, I actually started writing games for that. That's really
1: interesting. Because I've looked into the background of that machine before and actually read it. We had Steve Ferber, you know, from Acorn on the show, um last oh, cool. year. And he was talking about I think it was based on like a, an automated cow feeder or something. That's where the technology actually originated from. So
3: it was yeah, probably, it was, yeah. I
4: mean, there was the I, I can't remember her name. But it was um it was actually designed. Was, was it Kay? I can't remember her name now. Sophie Wilson. That. Sophie, that's it. Sophie yeah. Wilson, I just couldn't remember. But yeah, they they um they built a, a prototype. I think the prototype still exists. but uh, yeah, I, I would have to thank Sophie very much because that was the first computer I ever owned. And um, it was I learned an awful lot, um, a lot of frustration as well. Uh, but you know what? When you, <laughs> when you figured out when you figured out what was wrong and you got, you got your thing to work, it was incredibly satisfying
1: how did you start programming that machine? I mean, were you learning it from magazines? Did you have a local users group? How were you kind of taking it out? Was,
4: well, it was so cutting edge at that point. I mean, eventually there were, you know, you, I suppose the, there were magazines eventually, but I got the Acorn System 1 almost out the gate that it was being produced. So all I had was the manual. Uh, and uh, actually, you could still get a, a printing of the manual. And uh, I lost the original system one, but I, I managed to get one off eBay, and, and it needed to be repaired. <laughs> but I managed to do that about finish that about a few months ago. And I actually tried programming it again. I was um, I was I was trying to make an endless endless runner. I actually, streamed uh, me doing doing that. I'll get back to it again. But yeah, you just uh, you had the manual, and uh, the it, it, the manual consisted of. Um, basically the instruction codes for the 6502 microprocessor and then some information on the electronic circuit tree of the the whole unit plus the ROM uh, subroutines for, for displaying keyboard input and so on. And, um, yeah, 1K of RAM and the 6502 being the way it is, is a quarter of that is your stack. And then another quarter of it is your, you know, fast memory. And so, mm. in practice, and you could cheat and squeeze more out of it. But in practice, you had uh, uh, half a k for your program, and uh, you had to save that on cassette tape.
1: Of course, three hundred board. It's crazy, one k. You wouldn't even get a, a mouse cursor into one k today.
4: Yeah, yeah, I doubt it. Yeah, <laughs> you, uh, you would. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's uh, but don't get me started on that. I just bloat bloat on in, in software uh, is a thing that. As time goes on, I get more and more irritated by it, frankly. Um, it, mm. It's utterly shocking. Did you, did you ever play the game um, Star Raiders? Well, Star Raiders came out on the Atari 800 and yeah. 400, and then the 130XE, um, it was 1978 or 9. Uh, it's, for me, one of the best games ever made. It's just It's got so much in it that you can learn from that is relevant to games now it was 8k 8k cartridge you know they're still alive that particular spirit the spirit that manages to achieve like a a, a game a classic game like that in such a small amount of memory that's still there in the demo scene but what i find a bit of a shame is that people in the demo scene don't often cross over they don't seem to cross over with games much i mean they there are examples but often they're they're making these incredible demos and you wonder how did they manage to create all of that, like in one K or whatever. And uh, it's basically the necessity is the mother of invention, as they say.
2: And it's it's kind of like they're now setting themselves limits because they've got, um, you know, they could just go completely wild. So they've set themselves limits and it's uh, doing it within that, you know, certain amount of K.
4: Yeah, That's absolutely right. But the irony is that often under those constraints, they end up producing things which stand on their own merit. You don't see the demos and think, well, sometimes you do, you don't see the demos always or generally and think, oh, what's amazing about this is that it fits into, you know, 1K, 2K of memory. It's just, they're often amazing anyway. And that's yeah. just icing on the cake. And um, in, in some ways, more creative. And that, that fits in with the kind of philosophy, I think, that constraints are the, the mother of invention or the mother of creativity. Let's put it that way constraints are the mother of, of creativity. When you, when you give somebody a, uh, all the technology, all the options, uh, no constraints at all, um, then things seem to sort of dribble on and not really end up often, you know, not really end up particularly
1: inspired. I could, yeah, I could name I could name certain projects, but I won't. <laughs> so, I mean, getting back to obviously, had the Acom System One, and then did you kind of move into another machine? And what kind of projects were you working on before you entered the industry professionally? Were you making games at home and for friends? What were you kind of doing?
4: For, well, for, so the System One, there was no commercial, real commercial option for that, because uh, there really wasn't much of an industry. Uh, actually, if I'd got a um, an Atari 400 or 800, much more expensive, and that was from America. Um, There might have been. The the system that I got after that, though, was the Acorn Atom, which is obviously also an Acorn machine. That was based on six five hundred two one megahertz, and you could expand it to 6K of memory, which cost quite a bit at the time to expand it to Mm -hmm. 6K. That was was a marvellous one because it, it had a TV display, of course, with, with some limitations but you could do graphics on it and that was my first sort of commercial platform in the sense that 19 around 1980 there was a company called time data uh and they published some software that is still around in the emu you know the emulation on on the acorn atom and um they made a book called the acorn atom magic book and uh there are a, a few listings in there. A few listings because that was back in the times. So you would type in the program from a, a print and print out. And those are my first commercial sort of games in there. Didn't get a huge amount of money for that, but I got something. And from there, I went on to the BBC Micro, which of course is you know legendary. And that was an amazing machine. Uh, so I did a game called Astro Tracker, which is kind of like a. Clone of asteroids ish, um, and that was published by Bebug. and that was a step up uh, from from the uh, the magic book. And um, after that, there was uh, I made uh, I made a game for the Atari four hundred that never got published, but that was built right. on in, in, with an EEPROM. It got a bit quiet after that because at that point, then I went to uh, you know went to university. It was coming out of university and then getting a job out of university. I went to work at a silica shop in. Right, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the, still there the, in the magazines. You get the adverts from the old silica shop.
1: Oh, I should drool over those adverts as a kid. They looked incredible.
4: <laughs> they were, well, they, they're based in Sidcup and I was uh, mm. based in Bexley. I was actually not far away at all from, from the silica shop as it happened. So that's the, the connection there.
2: I actually went to uni in a in a Sidcup. But, um, you but, did, yeah, yeah. Um, Silica Shop was that then the original Silica Shop because I know it turned into an absolutely huge brand with uh, lots of stores nationwide.
4: They changed their name a bit when that happened. I, I, that I was this was way before I was I was involved there when there were basically the shop in Sidcup plus a warehouse, and I would work in the warehouse
2: repairing Atari STs. Well, but that ha- was a bit of a jump forward. Yeah, definitely. Like um how how did you end up getting involved with um Anil Gupta and um Anko then? And uh, uh, what- I was I was looking for publishers
4: because I after working f- at, this, at the silica shop for I don't know a year or, or two and I was young and a bit weird as I think most of us are when we I look back at myself then I go what. But um I was I was I wanted to get back into doing games because i had done them before going to uni and then and I, so i just had this job repairing out atari st computers so i was looking at you know the companies that we were repairing atari st computers for and so one of them was was anco so it was in dartford so it was nearby which was the main criteria <laughs> you know and um I, I went to so i went to visited them and and uh, that was annal and i said okay, I'll, I want to. I can program games. I can do that. So he, he tried me out on a, a game called Trivia Trove, Trivia Trove which was a, a game on the Amiga, and he wanted a port to the ST. So I did my own sort of take on it, porting, you know, making a version of that game on the Atari ST. And that went very well. It was pretty quick. I pr- probably I was paid a pittance for it. And then after that, you know, well, he said, what next? And he said, you know, football games are not very good. And uh, I remember my heart sank a bit because I was all into space games. So right. I still have, you know, because of Elite, mm. you know, those influences from the te- your teenager, you know. I must have been, what, eight, was I 18, 19, something like that. Late teens when Elite came out on the BBC Micro,
2: uh, that was awesome. What were the ANCO officers like then? Um, I hear it was just kind of a house and, uh, you know, packaging in one room and stuff, and it was just uh, quite small.
4: When I I joined, it was pretty much. I can't really remember the outside of it, funnily enough. I can only remember the inside, and it felt like a house. It was. I didn't work in the office there. I worked at home and pretty without an advance, actually. It was kind of those crazy, crazy days. So the development of Kickoff was actually done without any funding, <laughs> which, sounds, which sounds ridiculous. But that, those are the those are the cowboy days, weren't they? So uh, and there was there was Steve Screech and some other people, and Anil wasn't doing so well. I mean, around the time that I came along, I think they were putting out Strip Poker, which is uh, is it's always. There's always a sign when a, a, a development <laughs> company uh, starts resorting to that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that would work these days. Um, <laughs> it, ba- it barely worked then, to be honest. Well, you to me, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, I, yeah, I was I develop I I was developing that at home. So I I used to go into the office, and then he had a shop as well. And the the shop was a little down the road. It was just like a computer shop and so on. But he used to sell his own games in there. So you know that was probably useful to him for getting like you know feedback from the from the customers about things. Mm-hmm. So it's really it was an unlikely kind of pairing on a certain level but it's like I went with the flow and usually I find that when I go with the flow uh, things work out work out better.
1: Obviously, kick-off when I mean, it was a real revolution. I mean, I remember playing you know, earlier games like um, International Soccer on the Commodore 64. We played that quite a bit at home. I mean, were you a fan of any of the football games before that that kind of inspired it? Or how did you go about actually developing it and were there any challenges or highlights you remember? Obviously, the first you know, I, I
4: remember looking at a game. It was your generic how football games are done at that time game. And it, it was side-on with a small pitch and with huge sprites and i just looked at it and went just that's just just silly it's all wrong but that's the way they were and in in a way it's the way they a lot of games well maybe they've got a bit better now but there is a tendency to go that way it's a little more complicated because we're in 3D and so on but mm. it's like forgetting that the experience of uh, football heavily depends on the size of the pitch But you see, if you want to make a game where the characters of the the actual players themselves, this is especially true if you're doing 2D, right, you want to make them big on the screen, then you're going, if you keep the pitch to scale, then you're going to end up with um, not being able to see any of the pitch. I mean, because you're only going to see a tiny part of the pitch. So what they did was they they had the big uh, football player characters and then they made the pitch really small, so it felt more like, you know, five-a-side, an overcrowded five-a-side. I looked at that. I wasn't particularly, particularly keen on it. I think I was about the only one I looked at, because I, t- I tend to work, at, I tend to work in in isolation, but I limit my influences from outside because I find that they can pull you, it can pull you and drag you in sort of odd directions that are not necessarily the best especially if you want to innovate so what i did was i looked the scale was wrong so that was one criteria that i wanted to fix the other one was i I was always passionate ever since working on the acorn atom uh passionate to have totally smooth movement that you only get when you're running at 50 fps for PAL, 60 for ntsc Mm. but um you only get perfectly smooth movement if you're animating everything that quickly right and that's what i wanted so what you've got then is it needs to be fast it needs to have beta scale so it really had to be overhead because um i I really didn't see any other way of achieving those two requirements so that's why it became an overhead um, football game and it was Um,
2: incredibly fast as well like um did did you kind of do some assembly coding then, and and did you really have to optimise it to get that speed? Because uh, kickoffs always had that like status as being a really really fast game, and uh, once you get quick at it, it can be a uh, incredibly fast way that the ball travels across the pitch.
4: Yeah, it's. Uh, I think I did a calculation once, and that the if you were to compare it to real players i think they three times faster than real life
2: yeah they must have been very fit those sprites <laughs> yeah
4: <laughs> but part of the argument with that is that you're trying to compress a, a 90 minute game into you can't play for 90 minutes right yeah so uh, it's still a compromise if you were to <laughs> compress 90 minutes into 10 minutes then you'll be well nine times faster so uh, that would probably be unplayable. So it's taking a license with reality because you can't recreate reality. You, you just can't with a football game, not if people are going to, unless people are going to spend ninety minutes uh, playing playing the match, right? So I think that was part was deliberate to try and sort of speed speed it up. The other aspect of speed is is just the smoothness of which the game updates because you can also make the game update like half as much, like 30 uh, or 25 frames per second. And that's kind of independent of how fast things move. But if you try to make things move quickly at a lower frame rate, it gets harder to actually track the motion with your eyes and, and, and so on. And it just doesn't look as nice. So the, the real thing from a technical optimization point of view is trying to get the scrolling pitch The 22 players on the field with AI running, which had to be team based at AI, obviously, in some way, running on the pitch, running all together at uh, 50 FPS, 50 frames per second. And that could not be done in any other way other than Assembler, really. I could, plus, if I'd written it in C, I wouldn't have got it into the memory either, because there's memory constraints as well. So back then, then pretty much all games at uh, that era were written in assembler. That was just the standard, and um, various uh, optimizing techniques that are used. I mean, it was. It also helped that the sixty-eight thousand was the, the microprocessor that the ST and the Amiga had, and um, they're really wonderful to work with because they've got lots of registers, and you can do tricks where you hold important. Uh, addresses in memory you point to important places in memory holding it in a register that nothing touches and so there's really fast access to that information and so I would have one uh, address was pointing to the home team data another one pointing to the away team data and then there was another that pointed to the current player that was being processed so all of the routines for the the player all had very fast access to you know their data without needing to sort of unload and reload registers and so on so it was it was basically built from the ground up with an architecture that was meshed with the needs of the game and that's one reason why it got that fast and then there were a few other tricks as well you know things like no need to animate players that you are off the screen so there's kinds of those kinds of tricks and then um, unfortunately, when all the players are on the pitch or on the screen, I should say they're all on the pitch, but when they're all on the screen, 22 mm-hmm. players, it couldn't do it. Certainly the ST couldn't do it. I don't think the Amiga could handle it either because it just overloads the, it's too much, right? Um, yeah. So I used a further trick there, which is when that happens, it keeps drawing the the pitch at 50 FPS, but it time slices the players. And the ball is also 50 FPS, but it time slices the player. So the players don't move as quickly, ah, right? interesting. So if you've ever played the game and you noticed that's weird, there's a corner kick and out of looking at it, the players seem to jitter. If you've ever noticed that, mm. it's yeah. it's it's the uh, optimization kicking in because it just can't, uh, it would actually check to see real time, how much time it had left. And if it said, I'm running out of time, it would time slice them.
1: So Yeah, it's an ingenious workaround though. That must did it take a long time to come up with that then or uh
4: I, I had uh fortunately I had done hacking on the BBC micro on the v- horizontal blank. It actually wasn't that tricky because I'd done it before. On the on the BBC micro was a different thing. It's moving sprites around. And uh, you know, tearing. Yeah, probably yeah. every the I mean these days your options for dealing with these things are incredibly restricted because the hardware is all in pipelines and all locked down and and so but on the I on this BBC micro I had a game called Bandits and so I had to move a bunch of sprites around the screen and you know it's a similar kind of problem. Um, but I couldn't wait for the V blank, for the vertical blank. I needed to draw the sprites as the TV is drawing the picture. And so when you do that, there's a problem that in order to move A a sprite, they would move by clearing them and then drawing them. You clear them and then you draw them. Okay, well, the problem is there's a short amount of time when they're cleared and not yet drawn. And if you clear it and then the beam from the TV, you know, draws what isn't there, and then after it's passed, you put it back on the screen, then for one frame or more, because it beats, you know, like wagon wheels thing you you end up with it disappearing because it's actually there but just disappears the moment when the tv's drawing it yeah so um what i did with that to get around this is it would check the vertical sorry the horizontal blank on an interrupt which was possible to do in the bbc micro it could tell where the beam was and if it was too close it'd say well if i move this now it's going to disappear so just wait until the beam has gone past and then draw it. I was very proud. Uh, my headphone has just popped up. Um, I was very proud of that.
1: Yeah, and, it, you know, like like I said before, you know, the, the limitations force you to think of creative ways to get around them, Um yeah, definitely added to the game, I think. what One other design decision as well that I thought was interesting about kickoff is, you know, a lot of the time football games then the ball stuck to the player's feet and it was very unrealistic. You, you decided not to go with the sticky ball and make it more realistic. I mean, was that another design decision that you wanted to get in there?
4: Well, again, when I looked at the other games, I said, I mean, didn't everybody else see it? This is the bit I, I don't understand, actually. It's like everybody else looking at football games. Did they not immediately see that the ball sticks to the player it'd be interesting if they do a survey you know people who mm. played games before kickoff football games before kickoff if it ever bothered them i don't know but it bothered me i'm looking and going but that's silly you might as it's like carrying the ball Is, functionally there's no difference you might draw the ball at the foot but it makes no it's effectively the same as carrying the ball and the game is called football because you move the ball around with your feet. So if the ball is stuck to the player, you've actually defeated the whole point of football. Yeah. And so I said, no, I, I think we need to do this as a, a physics simulation. So the first thing I did was make the ball, bouncing of the ball and um, made that feel good, which meant I needed to put air friction in and try and make a, a, um, a football game without air friction what you'll find is that, you know, a player can kick the ball from one end of the field, and uh, it will sail away. And if you want it kicked with a force that looks impressive, like feels like it's a weighty kick, it's just going to fly out of the <laughs> out of the field. Yeah. Right. So it's a non-negotiable that you've got to have. Uh, air friction other people made football games that didn't have air friction you can say it's not non-negotiable but as I I, I I think it is there are certain versions of fifa where you know i'm not i don't study fifa a lot but this one i've seen so many times it's just like whoa uh, have you ever noticed that you, the ball gets kicked from one end of the field really and it, it lands sort of uh, within the uh, closer than the edge of the 18-yard box to the end of the pitch. And mm. the ball does this mysteriously odd vertical bounce. So I can tell you what that is. Um, not enough air friction or no air friction. And so to try and get around the problem that the ball just keeps going out of the pitch all the time, they make this vertical bounce. I don't know that that's the reason for a fact, but it's my best guess.
1: Back then, um, I, obviously, the magazines made a big deal about this as well. And I remember it in the playground, too, there was when Sensible Soccer came out, there was a perceived rivalry between Kickoff and Sensible Soccer. I mean, did, did the magazines make that a bigger deal than it actually was? And what do you think made Kickoff stand out?
4: Well, the, the thing is that kickoff, kickoff came first, but it annoyed whoever produced Microsoft Soccer, which was actually probably, it was, uh, it was Sensible Software, I think.
2: Do you mean Microprose?
4: Uh, Micropro Soccer. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, Micropro right. yeah, micro Soccer. Micropro Soccer started development, I believe, after I started development on Kickoff. I remember Anil telling me that some people were very annoyed because Kickoff came out. Um and uh, sort of, you know, stole the thunder of of this other other football game. Um but I mean, I, it was done. I I'd never seen the game. It was done in complete, you know, it's completely developed separately. So it comes out. And then for a period of time, it was like all, all the rage, but here's the thing is I, I, I tend to think I, we get dark here. <laughs> <laughs> I say, I say what I think, I mean, I'm never, I've never been really one to, to cater for popularity. I mean, things are what they are. And, um, in the end, the success of kickoff was a huge problem because, in the end, it means that I get it from many angles. So, one angle that I get here people is a very skill based game, right? Uh, yeah. You hear many stories about brothers playing games, all right? I imagine there were also brothers and sisters playing games and si- play, playing kickoff and sisters playing kickoff. But I think being football and the, the, the leaning of society, mostly it was brothers. Um, and generally, one would win most of the time and the other would lose most of the time.
1: Normally with a punch in the arm, if I remember.
4: <laughs> yeah, this is it. The punch <laughs> of the arm is important because, you know, I, I just when I make kickoff, I didn't make kickoff with any of these things being things I was considering. I'm 20-something uh, mm. and I'm just doing what I love, making video games, right? So I'm not sitting there thinking, Dino, if you make a highly competitive game that is very skill-based – and uh, the skill level required to play the game is such that it's more genetic whether or not you can play the game that that is a component that is difficult to overcome i say genetic because basically nature or nurture argument right the point Mm. is is that people's reaction times are pretty hardwired you can improve them to some extent but then those who already have fast reaction times can improve their ready fast reaction times. So it was a mistake without realizing it to make a game that was hugely skill based, but one which people had limited options of improving their skill level. Because then that means that people then feel uh, helpless and hopeless with it. And this wouldn't matter, it's only a game unless it's a very popular game where there's a lot of rivalry and <laughs> and so then you end up with people hating the
2: game if they can't ever win it, and then right? people saying, "I'm more skilled because I'm on this one or yeah yeah yeah, and I, I know exactly what you mean <laughs> with that with that kind of reaction thing, definitely,
4: yeah, and so. There's the thing i sort of made it with the i I made the game with the idea, and if you stick at it and so on, then you, you improve your skill. But there was a flaw in this plan. I, I was too young and to 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 know it. If I could go back in a time machine, I would just say my, to my myself is don't make that
1: game. I, but the memories that we have, you know that that to me was the golden age of, you know, couch gaming, even though there was, you know, arguments and you're punching the arm, it'd be like, <laughs> right, let's have another go at it, you know, I'm, I'm going to beat you this time. That would often happen, I think. There was something very special about it when you got friends over or your little brother was playing those kind of games with you. I think, you know, over online, for example, that feels a bit anonymous sometimes.
4: Yeah, I think so. And I think if people are play a game like that and winning isn't important, it's like, plus the fact that you it wasn't like you would always lose. So the one time you managed to defeat your nemesis it it would feel really good Mm. right but um you know it's it's an issue and so basically uh sensible soccer sort of you can say leveled the playing field in the sense that it was a less skill-based game i know that there are people who are going to go what do you mean but I, i know what i mean as a game designer i know what i mean I don't know what mm. I'm saying. I'm not saying there's no skill involved, but I'm saying is less. That's p- primarily the um modification that they made to the game design when they worked on it. They made their- Yeah, more like
1: an arcade game.
4: Yeah, exactly. It's like, because it's the same thing. It was like arcade, well, Kickoff is like an arcade, is, is, is an arcade game in the sense that, you know, just it's the same thing. It, it's like those arcade style games- like beat-em-ups or whatever, you're playing against someone who's better than you, you will never beat them, right? There's there's very little that you can do because they're so skill-focused. In some way, well, it's the same thing. It's, it's no different now, actually, think of me, thinking about it. If you're playing a, a first-person shooter, they're generally like that.
2: And, that and, and the only people. difference is now that you have to go and find a local person in your area. Well, back then you'd have to go and find a local person that you could... Kind of beat and challenge, and now you kind of do it online. Now you do it online, which is
4: kind of anonymous. But anyway, um I digress. But the 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 thing is that that is a point where you you asked about the rivalry, you know, thing. So the other aspect of it is is that you know journalists always need something to print. So you know that's that's an element, and so you can make a story. So they made a story out of it, Uh, but they. They did it without real consideration for, you know, uh, the consequences for those involved, which is which is pretty much always the way with journalism. I don't know. Yeah.
2: And, and <laughs> it's and like... There were a lot of mags out back then as well. You know, uh, ju- game video game journalism was a lot more kind of powerful back then. Um, yes, it was. Than it is kind of nowadays.
4: Uh, there's no doubt about that. So did they make more of it? Well, no, no, just with one exception. Uh, the exception is Amiga Power, I believe, right? It was the, the one where that Scottish journalist uh, was uh, eventually the editor. And I think that is mm. p- that is power, right? Um, yes, yeah, Gio Campbell. <laughs> uh, yes, that Scottish journalist. Uh, so, yeah. And that, I mean, this this, 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 that went to the point where, if it happened today, there would be, if what happened then happened today, there would likely be a a really expensive lawsuit involved. What actually happened there, because they they published a fake letter.
2: Yeah, from God, me. Yeah, I remember yeah. that uh, controversy. Yeah. yeah.
4: And that's how nasty it got, and it got, it got, they got nasty because I was staying out of it, and that's a, a thing that people forget. And they think, I don't know to what extent you know the the view of who Dino Dini is, what, what that is, or where that's at. It I used to trouble me that question. These days, I I I, I don't know. I, I I I can talk about it without tensing up really. So maybe I'm I'm getting over it now. But you know, um but it was for me it was a huge i was i was staying i was staying completely out of the whole thing right just getting on and doing what i do which would make games that's 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 it so then i because i was staying silent uh, i got dragged in anyway and um this was pretty devastating and i realized i made a mistake that i didn't sort of cha- well i say made a mistake that i didn't challenge it more what what on earth what on earth could be done? It was There's nothing that could be done at that point, especially
1: then in, in that pre-internet era, you, it was hard to get your word out, wasn't it? you know you had to rely on the magazines printing it. Yeah, you did. and the, but the thing is they did print a retraction, but
4: the retraction came like two months later, and by then mm. the, there was everybody's minds were made up. it was too late. I mean, even to the extent that I, when I published uh my version of the story many, many, many years later and put it up on my website. And of course, there was a person there who said, no, it was you. It's like, what the hell?
2: Oh, well, <laughs> um, you, you ended up getting onto a kickoff too, and uh, that was kind of bigger and better. And how, how did you want to improve the series then? And uh, uh, what did you do to improve on the original?
4: Yeah, there were a bunch of things I wanted to do on that. One of them was to integrate the stats from player manager into it. Uh, and then, uh, I had this idea of making kind of a, you know, an online version of player manager, which really wasn't an option back then, but I was thinking about how great it would be. Then it was, maybe people can share their teams with each other or go around to their friends to play the game and they can play with their team that they grew in player manager. So I wanted to, to do that. Uh, I wanted to, uh, have replays that could be saved. so that was a feature that was in there. I wanted to try and solve the problem of only eight directions that you could shoot in. This bugged me a lot this this was for me was really annoying. It's like not being able to aim where you shoot. So the original kickoff you you could only shoot in eight directions. there was a bit of maybe a bit of randomization. In at least Player Manager, I don't think I put the randomization of the shots in the original kickoff.
2: Well, Player Manager was kind of based on the uh, kickoff engine as well, and um, you know it covered stuff like hooliganism and uh, the stadium disasters at the time. Was it important that you reflected like the football culture and what was actually going on?
4: So yeah, some of the, the, those ideas of, of things that, uh, such as that, was also. Uh, from, from Anil uh, and probably Steve Screech as well, some of those events. But the actual idea of having the cards pop up, that was inspired by Monopoly. So community chess chance cards. You know, basically from ANCO came some of the, the appreciation for for the field, right, for the area, for the, for, for, for the topic. But um, the real thing there is figuring out which one's to, to keep and which ones to throw out. So with player manager, I remember I was having a journey with, uh, with Anil Gupta. We were, we were driving somewhere, I don't know where, and we were talking about player manager and we were talking about the financial aspects of it. And, it, it, you know, and he was saying, you, you, you know, you've got to sort of track all of your expenses and, you, 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 you know, you, your income and, and so on and so on and so on. I remember thinking, that doesn't sound like fun. So I said, well, we could just cut all of that out and just give a summary. So that's the approach that we ended up with. So, it, so player, player manager doesn't have all of that accounting in it. You've just got an executive summary. You know, you've got, you, you, you know how much money you're getting and how much money you've got to spend and, and, and so on. And there's an accounting going on, but the computer does that for you. And, and it's sort of, if the better you do, the more money you get. And sort of really, that's all that matters. So I think an important part of game design is understanding or deciding what's important and what isn't, you know. Well,
2: also, it was, it was kind of important to the fans to get like the latest updates and stuff. Um, were the expansion discs really important? And did you kind of have fun putting stuff into those and uh, getting them out to people? Because this was a world without uh, DLC, you know, back then.
4: Yeah. Yeah, you could say that there are many things that that were we were we were playing with that uh, if not completely innovative they are on the borderline of innovation, you know. But that was driven entirely from a, a financial point of view. The question there was, yeah, we can you know, produce data disks with the latest uh attributes of players and so on and those i would have put the data in i think it would've been steve who probably would have compiled the data but it, the the idea there is is clearly okay you can expand the game without making a whole new game and so in this way you can extend your revenue stream but you can also provide the you know the players with new content that would not be possible to do it on day 1 i think that that was really it i mean otherwise it's a long old journey you know, one of the problems you get then is if there was a kickoff three, which in the end there was, but it was called goal, but a goal was uh, a complete rewrite because at a certain point you have to say, ah, I, in order to make it justified to have a whole new game, uh, then maybe what we need to do is to, you know, provide a whole new game as opposed to just adding a little bit of this or that to it. So, if the options are make a whole new game or don't make any game, that's a bit of a stark uh, choice, right? So it's, mm. it's, it kind of makes sense if you can do something in between. And I think that's that's what the intention was.
1: You know, when Kickoff 2 came out, obviously that was 1990, and that was kind of on that cusp of when, you know, the, the 8-bit generation was kind of moving into 16-bit. But obviously it came out on a lot of 8-bit computers as well. I know there was... Um, uh, spectrum version c64 version as well and being a more advanced game with like the tournament modes in there and the different pitches i mean did you have much control over the ports and no. were there any that you kind of like more than others
4: remember i said it was their cowboy like days so basically yeah. uh anko did what they liked so i had no creative control over uh anything that wasn't on amiga or st and furthermore they were usually developed without my knowledge and at least one occasion uh, two occasions were developed with use of source code that wasn't supposed to be used. <laughs> Mine. you know so um it was all it was all a bit dodgy, and I, you know when I think about that, it's best not to really go there on a certain level, but from a historical point of view and to answer your question, um you know, I lost control of that dragon. It 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 it, uh, it did what it wanted to do, and uh, um, you know made a a number of people better off. And uh, it's a shame um, that I, you know ultimately I was forced to you know break off from it. And then because it was old cowboy days, I couldn't take the. It wasn't practical for me to fight to take the the game with me. So having worked on a new game, working on a new game that was a complete rewrite um, is also part of, you know, achieving that disconnection from that start so that then afterwards things were done properly uh, from goal onwards. But by then, things had moved on, you know, it was a different time. Was that a
1: similar story with Dinah um, Dinodini Soccer on the Super Nintendo? So, another Mega Drive version was a great hit, but it kind of went wrong on the on the SNES. Yeah,
4: well, the problem there was that they—I was contracted to do a version on the SNES and a version on the Mega Drive. I couldn't do both, so I had an agent, Jackie Lyons. Uh, I don't—I think she's retired now. Uh, she she got me the the deal with with Virgin. And uh, I said, look, I can't do both. Uh, plus, the the port to the SNES is complicated by the fact that it's got a different processor on it. So it, basically, it's a rewrite of the entire code base. Something, incidentally, that Chris Sawyer did an exemplary job of. Yeah? Mm. Chris Sawyer did the conversion of Goal to PC. It would have been even better if, if we had been able to use like ModeX, but I don't know why that wasn't possible, but... That was the biggest limitation there with it. But he did a faithful port of the gameplay. He, he, he ported the 68,000 code to PC. And so that PC version plays the way it should, right? But with with a SNES version, um, it went to some other company who I will not name. Uh, and um, instead of uh, being faithful to the game design, they decided to just make their own game in effect. And that was a painful lesson because then my name is on <laughs> is on that. Uh, so yeah, I made a few mistakes. Uh, that you know, they're ones that you don't see coming. Um, but uh, that that was uh, that was another terrible mistake because you know I don't want my name on a game that I've got no creative control of.
1: I mean, by then your name it had a lot of value. You know, you, you become a well-known figure. I mean, did you kind of realise how well-known you were and? at the time in the industry? And how did you kind of handle that You know, fame that you received? Well, but as
4: far as I, but I couldn't. I couldn't handle any of that because, because the whole thing. When I was keeping a low profile because I knew the danger of getting caught up in all of that drama uh, after the fake letter, how do you think I, I could possibly recover from that? How do you think I could ever possibly look at fame um, sort of in, in an objective and, and, and positive way? I couldn't, so I think it just. So I, I like to, you know, I don't like to say, but really the reality is, I've never really, I've never had a party. I sort of joked about this with with uh, Abriel on Kickoff Revival that I, I never had a launch party, mm. you know. So in a way, there are two Dinos. There's there's the the me I know I am, and then there's the me that I think everybody else thinks I am, and uh, right. that is. That's what I think about it. And so I, I try and keep the two separate.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> y- you kind of um, released Kickoff Revival as well. And um, do you think like the, the indie games kind of revolution has really helped create an environment where titles can come out and smaller titles can, can just pop out as well and come onto major consoles and uh, get mm-hmm. releases? No, I used
4: to think so. I mean, that was one of the things I was excited about and I had the opportunity with uh, Sony's strategic content division to do Kick-Off Revival. Uh, so, yeah, it seems like a great idea, doesn't it? Uh, so I gave it, uh, gave it a good old shot uh, of that. Uh, but the reality is that uh, it's like uh, like the gold rush, that kind of, you in the gold rush you would have people who would give up everything to go and try to strike gold because there's gold in their (laughs) I didn't do Kickoff Revival because I was dreaming. I did it because there was an opportunity for me to answer a question, which is if I had all of the technology of the modern day and I was building Kickoff, how would it have turned out? Mm. I'm not saying I totally answered that question, but that was a motivator for, for, for that. And then second, well, secondarily or part of it was the idea that I maybe I'll eventually be able to make uh, Player Manager 2 because I've been waiting all my life to, to do Player Manager 2. So it's done with a goodwill is my point. It's done from a point of view of love, if you will, the love of what I do, game development, uh, with uh, loving the monster that I created, trying to, to, to work with that. But then when it turns out, it really, none of it matters. The monster doesn't care about you. And If I had a message for anybody who's in the creative, doing creative work like this, you have to understand that the thing that you create doesn't give a damn about you. It's not going to look after you. It's not going to protect you. And if it feels like it, will rip your head off. So don't do it from the point of view of really wanting anything back. You don't, don't do it because you want a career don't do it because you want appro- approbation. Don't do it because you want to, you know, finally get to do player manager two. It doesn't matter. Just don't do it for any of those reasons. And if if you do that, you probably don't have much more of a chance of actually uh, being successful than if you don't. But you will have a great advantage, which is that you'll have less stress, less disappointment, and um, maybe more flexibility to see a way through that ironically might actually make it more likely that you get something you didn't know you wanted but but in fact you did i don't know if that makes if that makes any sense no
2: no i totally get it like because you you, you've actually lectured in game programming and stuff and it's like you know maybe not just get wrapped so much into a a certain title or or just kind of you know produce it and then move on or create a another work of art you know keep keep that's it keep kind of going and uh yeah don't don't get too wrapped up have you found that you've like helped a lot of young developers and 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 students kind of
4: i have no idea (laughs) 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 i have absolutely no idea if i've been of any help at all i know that there are some people i mean i i only know the story of of a of a few, and those kind of can make it worthwhile. I mean, I know the story of one guy who was afraid of mathematics, ended up um, becoming a technical artist and is working in the US now for a big company. And you know, and then I, I think, well, that was worthwhile. Yeah. I, I obviously helped them. As a teacher, I did my best. I have absolutely no idea if it actually helped or not. I believed in what I was teaching. And I think that's the same with games, maybe. You know, it's like, I don't. You know, as to how I have to rationalize in my mind the utter disaster, of kickoff revival, when you're looking at it from a, you know, what it was supposed to be and what it was supposed to enable to actually what happened. Then, But then if I just go back to, so you know what, I believe in what I do. I believed in what I did. I believe I did it as well as I could and that it wasn't actually that bad because um, I know that there are people quite happy with it. Uh, but beyond that, uh you know, it just is what it is.
1: I've got to ask. I mean, have you got any plans to do any more games? Is there anything in the pipeline that you're considering or you'd like to do? I mean, maybe <laughs> something outside the football sphere. Well, uh, yeah.
4: I mean, you know, I'm a game designer. I'm a game developer, and right now, uh, in my work, I'm working in the a field. I'm working at Splash Damage. I'm having a great old time there and i'm finding that i'm able to make use of my skills and ability in a meaningful way and that you know that is great and all i need really so the the point there is do i want to make any indie games anymore I i got rather burnt last time i tried so from time to time i dabble in some things so um i i i think that Ability. probably the hardest thing in game development right now is figuring out how to playfully make a game that's it because i've tried making games and experimenting while streaming and that was an interesting exercise i I streamed the development of kickoff revival for example um that was an interesting experiment but the problem there slight is is that slightly is that um you end up um sort of the 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 streaming becomes the reason not the playing so uh i am trying at the moment to putting my foot in the water feet in the water again on developing something but i'm taking the view of i'm developing it for me because i'm the only person who's ever going to damn well play it anyway and just see where it takes me
1: that's a good approach i think yeah you're not putting pressure on yourself
4: that's it don't put pressure on yourself
1: well, Dino, and I know obviously there's been many ups and downs throughout your career, but you know I just want to say a big thank you for you know all the memories that you've you've made with your games that will last a lifetime for you know us and our audience as well. And um, we thank you for being so honest in this chat as well. It's been some really insightful stories. So um, a big thank you for coming on and uh, taking the time to be our guest. Well, well,
4: it's been a pleasure, and uh, yeah, I wish you and everyone and all your listeners all the best.
0: passes from 89 pounds. Book yours now at the com.